Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes, at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with author Katie Simpson-Smith, whose most recent novel, The Weeds, was published this spring. Katie Simpson-Smith was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi, and now lives in New Orleans. In addition to The Weeds, she is the author of the novels The Story of Land and Sea, Free Men, and The Everlasting. Her writing has also appeared in The Washington Post, The Paris Review, Oxford American, and elsewhere. She received a PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars, and is also the author of the nonfiction book, We Have Raised All of You, Motherhood in the South, 1750 to 1835. Welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Lauren. It's always a pleasure to be speaking with you. Well, let's go ahead. I I really want to talk about your latest book, but um, I do want to start at the beginnings of your creative journey. You grew up in Jackson, and fun fact, you actually grew up in the house where Eudora Welty lived briefly with her family, correct? That's right. Yeah, she was a teenager for about six months in the house where I grew up. So I feel like you, just knowing that about you, I feel like you were destined to become a writer. Um, Was reading and writing a, a big part of your life from an early age? Oh, absolutely. I was always a huge reader. Um, I remember there's this picture of me on the front page of like the lifestyle section of the Clarion Ledger at age six or seven. And I'm in the stacks of the Dora Welty Library with like maybe Louisa May Alcott on my lap or something. Oh my um, gosh. My my grandfather has that cut out and framed in his living room. <laughs> Um, so yes, I think books were always super important. The world of imagination and storytelling was always, um, felt very central to my life and my identity. Um, and I was really lucky in the fact that I had a family that was very supportive of that kind of fabulism in a child, um, and didn't try to suppress it. And also that I grew up in a city like Jackson, which is so, rich and dense with storytellers um, that it felt like I was doing something very normal and very natural um, every time I I told a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, did you feel inspired or or influenced by sort of those legendary Mississippi writers like Welty and Faulkner, or did that feel like, you know, something you needed to rebel against their influence in some ways? I don't know if I ever consciously saw myself as part of that lineage until much later. Um, I remember certainly reading them in uh, middle school and high school. I think we had to read The Unvanquished in middle school, which seems mm-hmm. very early. Wow. Um, but but thinking, oh, gosh, like this is what it means to be a Mississippian. Not necessarily like this is what I have to live up to, because I didn't think at that point that I was going to become a writer. Um, but this is the language that our people use and how... Mm-hmm. Like, how do we all use that language in a way that is um, responsible and that honors the people who are creating these stories that come before us and that isn't 
um, silly or ridiculous or outdated? Um, how do we sort of carry that legacy forward? Um, so I think there were certainly parts of me reading Wealthy in high school that thought this isn't relevant to, you know, mm-hmm. the 20, late 20th, early 21st century. Um, and then looking back, I think, oh, what a gift that we were all given those words at such a young age that it became kind of part of our bloodstream. That's fascinating. Well, um, you did end up leaving the South for at least a period of time. You went to Mount Holyoke for college in in Massachusetts and studied history and film. Um, I'm curious, what drew you to New England? I wanted to get as far away from Mississippi as possible. (laughs) Uh, I left high school when I was 16 years old, so I was very young and very naive about uh, regional politics and what it meant to be a Southerner. Um, mm-hmm. I just had this sense that if you were progressive, you had to escape. Um, that there were these sort of enlightened lands somewhere far out there and that I just had to find my way to them. Um, so I went to Mount Holyoke, which was pretty much as far North as you could get from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a women's college, which I, I felt was very important, especially going to college at a younger age. Um, it felt like a much more sort of warm and supportive environment in that way, too. Um, but as you can imagine, when I got to Massachusetts, I realized that people are the same everywhere. Yes. And that there are no enlightened lands in America. <laughs> and that really what you're dealing with is individual human beings. Um, and... I recognized so much that was that felt kind of emotionally lacking there mm-hmm. um, in terms of warmth, in terms of hospitality, certainly in terms of storytelling. Um, that I it took me probably the whole four years to kind of triangulate what was absent and how to get back to it. Um, and certainly studying history influenced how I understood the South in a, in a broader context. Um, and realizing that this, the problems of the South are really the problems of America uh, and that running away from the South was running towards nothing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked my way slowly back down South for graduate school um, and then later finally to the the very belly of the Gulf of Mexico in, in New Orleans now. Um, but I don't think that I would have had as full and deep an understanding of what the South meant to me if I had not left it at some point. And so I am very grateful for that experience. That is actually something I was going to ask you was that, you know, if it gave you a new perspective to be so far away, I I feel like that's a common thread of Mississippians who have left and come home or learned to miss home maybe in a deeper way. Yeah, um, it applies to to people more broadly. Like it's certainly Mississippians because we live in this place that everyone has a very strong opinion about, um, outsiders especially. But I think, you know, if you grow up in Ohio, you should go to Colorado. And if you grow up <laughs> in Idaho, you should check out Florida. Um, go abroad. Like any any opportunity to expand your sense of the world is only going to bring you into a closer understanding of where you're from, I think. I think that's exactly true. I mean, especially I, I have that understanding as someone who's from Colorado living in Mississippi. So I think that's spot on. Um, I do want to ask you about what attracted you to the field of of history and 
film, but especially history, because you ended up, you know, studying that in graduate school and getting your PhD in history. Um, what drew you to to history to begin with? Yeah, I think I just saw history as a kind of socially sanctioned way to tell stories. Um, there are these mm-hmm. kind of built in uh, narratives in the past that uh, we've created this academic discipline around. Um, both my parents are professors, and so I always imagined that I would become a professor too. And history seemed like the most natural way to um, tell stories with beginnings and middles and ends uh, within that framework of academia. Um, and there's just so many fascinating characters and episodes and shocking things and material artifacts when you study history. Um, and so I was getting a lot of sort of intellectual and emotional stimulation um, from that field, even as I was sort of gradually realizing the limitations of it as well. Yeah. And was there a, a specific time period that you, you know, particularly found yourself interested in and, and fascinated by? Yeah. So my first year of college, I took a first year seminar with Joseph Ellis, who is a great uh, scholar of the American Revolution. Um, and I just got obsessed with the American Revolution, late mm. 18th century America. It was this fascinating time of like total possibility. You know, America was not born yet in the way that we understand it now. And all of these people were trying to figure out what it meant um, and what these big philosophical concepts of like freedom, um, equity, what they meant in the context of a society that was still like rife with problems and, and inequities. Um, and the, the contradictions that are sort of built into the bedrock of our society about, you know, what it, what it means to be independent, uh, at a time when the only people who, for whom independence mattered were, um, white men who owned property. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's super fascinating to me. And, And I was very interested in, in sort of digging around the edges of that and finding the stories of um, women and enslaved people and free black people. Uh, and so that was, that was sort of what I pursued for, for most of college and then again in, into graduate school. And I'm so, I'm so fascinated by your, your first book. We have raised all of you about motherhood in the South. Um, what was it about motherhood that you found at, you know, like as an entry point into these people's lives like what fascinated you about that specific piece of history that I feel like is so often overlooked um yeah like historical motherhood is just so interesting and so under you know not told yeah so one of the frameworks that I was taught early on was that in the 18th century there was the public sphere and the private sphere and men participated in the public sphere. That was economics, that was government, that was politics, that was um, business and trade. And women were confined to the private sphere. That was domesticity, um, education to a certain extent, um, and motherhood. Um, And when I heard historians talk about these two spheres, the private sphere was always seen as limiting and oppressive. And I was like, okay, yes, like I'm fully on board with like women being oppressed in the 18th century. Yes. Uh, But the more I thought about it, the more I, the more it occurred to me that just like um, scholarship around the lives of enslaved people uh, for whom the brutality had to be tempered with 
uh, a search for meaning um, and happiness and family and joy within that in order to be a three-dimensional human big human being that women too had to have found some shred of meaning in this sphere that we as 21st century historians are calling oppressive. And so what would that have been? Um, and so I thought motherhood could be a very interesting lens onto seeing how women redefined the roles that were given to them uh, within their very limited control. Um, how they redefine that to be sources of power and meaning and worth and self-value. Uh, and so I started sort of rereading all of these documents that I had some familiarity with, you know, letters and diaries from elite white women, um, plantation records that talked about um, reproduction among uh, enslaved women, um, sort of material artifacts uh, left by Cherokee and Catawba women. Um, hmm. And sure enough, if you're if you're actually listening to the women's voices instead of to what men are saying about them, you discover that they find motherhood to be this super powerful identity that allows them to control their families. They're the ones in charge of uh, educating their children. They're the ones in charge of defining what it means to be a good citizen in this brand new country. Um, it's not men who are coming home and telling their sons that, you know, what patriotism mean. It's actually the mothers in the schoolrooms. Um, it's enslaved mothers who are taking enormous risks to try to teach their children literacy, um, you know, during during breaks from field work. Uh, and, and you can sense their pride in that rather than their feeling of oppression. Um, so I, I was just very fascinated by by looking at how people who are extremely limited in societies uh, nonetheless fight for a sense of, of self-worth. Uh, and then, yeah, and then it turned into a big old book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because I feel like that's such a theme that weaves itself through your fiction as well. I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. One, you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with author Katie Simpson-Smith, whose novel The Weeds was published this spring. We were talking before the break about um, your nonfiction book, Katie, and then you moved into fiction. That seems like quite the transition. 
had you been writing nonfiction while you were getting your PhD or writing fiction and um, short stories or novels while you're getting your PhD? How did that, how did that happen? Yeah, it was a very risky transition. It felt like at the time um, I'd been writing stories since I was real little um, always as a hobby, always as a source of sort of personal entertainment. Um, although I think I, you know, published some stuff in the high school literary magazine as one does when one's a literary teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and then wrote, you know, bad love poetry in college, I would say. And then once I started grad school at UNC to study history, I thought, okay, I, I really need to devote all of my time to this very different writing style. Um, and so I I stopped writing so much the first few years of the program. Um, but there was something about all of these characters that I was encountering in the archives that kept tugging me towards fictional places. Um, I think it was maybe in my fourth year that I started to sort of dabble in short stories again. Um, and I actually took, uh, on the slide an adult enrichment class, um, at UNC in creative writing. Um, and it was me and like a lot of older folks who were retired um, and had amazing stories to tell. Uh, and I didn't tell my advisors what I was doing. I thought this, this is just personal. It's just for me. <laughs> um, but I just got so into it and it was, it felt soul satisfying in a way that history was only partially so. Mm-hmm. So my fifth year of the program, I was supposed to finish up my dissertation and then go on the job market in history. Um, and the job market then was super tough as it is now. Um, and I, I was sort of faced with this, um, this vision of, you know, looking forward to job interviews. And if I was lucky, maybe just a one-year appointment somewhere doing something that I wasn't a hundred percent sure I wanted to do. On the other hand, I had these little stories that I was writing that made me so, so happy. Um, And I was in my mid-20s and I thought, okay, if I'm going to take a super big risk with my life, it's going to be now. Because if I get a job teaching history somewhere in, you know, North Dakota or whatever, I'm going to, you know, be on the tenure track and and, uh, feel a lot of pressure to publish in the historical field. Um, and that risk is going to feel less and less possible for me. Uh, so I decided instead of going on the job market to apply for MFA programs in fiction, <laughs> again, not telling my advisor. <laughs> um, do thought, you think, um, do you think they would have react, reacted strongly to that or? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Cause it was kind of a bananas plan, you know, like no one makes, a living as a writer. So like, mm-hmm. what, what did I think I was doing? <laughs> but in all these years of work to do this one very specialized thing. And then here I was, you know, herring off into the wilderness. <laughs> um, but in my head, I thought, okay, like if I get into an MFA program, I'll spend two years focusing on writing and language. And that's only going to help me when I come back to the historical profession and look for a job in two years. So like, it won't be wasted time. Mm-hmm. So I got into an MFA program and on like day one, I met all of these other students who were like my people. They were readers and writers and weird folks. And like they, their brains worked in the same way mine did. 
Uh, and I was just so blissfully happy. It was like, you know, a turtle returning to its pond. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought there's any way that I could do this for the rest of my life, that I would be the luckiest person. Um, and I was able to, to take all of the tools that I had learned in history, um, you know, the research, the, the sort of obsessiveness about archival detail um, and pull that into fiction, which just ex- felt like it was expanding the emotional world of these historical stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, I just, I never looked back. I mean, in some ways it seems like, okay, that was an unexpected shift, but in many ways it makes so much sense. And, you know, especially as a historical fiction writer, like those are incredibly useful skills that you can draw on and useful experience. Um, but did it just feel like a breath of fresh air to finally not have to just like stick to total historical facts and documents and like explore the human emotional range too in like new ways? Absolutely. I didn't have to include footnotes on anything. (laughs) Yes. I still have noticed your novels do include quite a bit of research notes at the end. It's true. But probably compared to like a thesis or a nonfiction book, I imagine like a fraction of that. Yes, exactly. But yes, a, a breath of fresh air is exactly what it was. Did you have to, once you, you know, you are doing research on historical figures, even if they were maybe like imagined historical figures, um, did you have to change the way you approached your research writing fiction than you did as an academic? Yeah. So I think when I wrote history, my strategy was to sort of be a maximalist. So I would I would try to get as much archival information as possible. I would read every single letter and diary before I put a word on paper. Um, so I was amassing the evidence before I was constructing an argument because um, you don't know what argument you're going to make until you have all of the, the sort of granular matter in front of you. Um, and with fiction, it's kind of the opposite. You go into it with this idea for a story with a character and you start moving them through their world before you fully understand what research you're going to need to flesh out that world. Um, so, you know, a protagonist walks into the room and then you realize you don't know whether, um, the stove in the room is, you know, if it's like the early 20th century, is it electric yet? Is it still an open hearth? Um, and then you pause and you move to do that research before coming Mm -hmm. back to, to let the protagonist take the pot off of the fire. Um, and so I had to, I had to retrain myself not to do all the research at the front end, um, which is a little bit scary. It feels like writing without that kind of safety net. Yeah. Um, but I quickly learned that if I tried to to be research heavy from the beginning, that my books would feel more like dissertations than novels. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that was a learning process for sure. Well, and I think the thing that's so unique about your writing is that even if you're writing about a character who's living in the 19th century, it's still like people are people no matter what era they're living in. And I think that sometimes the misconception that readers have, I mean, I've had that, like people must have been so different many centuries ago, but really we're all dealing with the same set of basic desires and impulses. Um, And so I think that 
you know, your books seem to spring from that understanding. And then there's that whole fascinating layer of historical context that goes along with that. Um, yeah, I have a lot of students who write historical fiction who who start off by making their characters very formal. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like, they're very proper and they move through their worlds in a very kind of prim way. And I have to remind them that like, they felt all the same basic universal human emotions that we yeah. do. Um, and, and the historical elements of historical fiction are the kind of um, contextual dressing around that universal core. Um, but your characters aren't going to feel fully human unless you get at that, that universal core first. Right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit to your, um, your two latest books, which the everlasting and the weeds, which are both set in Rome. Um, the everlasting was published in 2020 and the weeds was just published this spring. Did you travel to Rome with the intention of writing a book? Um, did that happen, you know, serendipitously? What was, what went into, um, what happened there? <laughs> yeah, it I seems like a big leap for, you know, a Southern writer and then a book comes out and it's, it's set in Rome, a beautiful book. So yeah, um, take I us with you. I never intended to write about Rome. I, once again, that was one of the things that did not feel possible given my skill set. Um, I think I took maybe one class in like Greek and Roman history in college. And of course, remembered nothing from it. <laughs> um, but I traveled to Rome first in 2015 for a month, um, just as a way to escape writer's block. I was having, uh, on the heels of my second novel, I was having trouble finding new ideas, um, and was getting very frustrated with myself. And I thought, oh gosh, this is the end of the road for me as a writer, <laughs> Um, and my solution in, in my head has made total sense was to try to flee the English language entirely. Um, I thought if I could go to Rome and just be surrounded by people speaking gibberish that I didn't understand that like my whole system would get flushed out and I would be ready for a new inspiration to strike me when I returned to America. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Rome, you know, unfortunately for me, or maybe fortunately, it's just the most inspiring city. Yeah, It is so chock full of stories. It has such an incredible perspective on history, um, history as layers rather than history as kind of any kind of linear progression. Um, and I just remember being so thrilled by all the possibilities that it offered in terms of storytelling. And then equally intimidated by the fact that I knew nothing about Roman history. <laughs> when I tell those stories, and you know, who was I to waltz into this foreign country and and assume that I had anything to say about it? Um, but I think there are a surprising number of parallels between um, Rome and the South in terms of kind of abundance and luxury and also decay and ruin. Mm. Um and so it didn't feel quite as foreign as it might have otherwise. Uh, and so that was the seed for the everlasting. Um, and then I went back again in 2017 to do more research for that novel. I spent another month there uh, and then certainly thought, well, you know, that's it for, for Rome. <laughs> and then it wasn't. <laughs> and I wrote the weeds um, a couple of years later. I'm glad it wasn't the end because it feels like there was so much left for you to explore. Um, 
I, I do want to, since we mentioned the everlasting, can you give us, it's, first of all, it's set in Rome, it spans two millennia and is told through the perspective of four protagonists with also in commentary from the devil. Um, did, was there a certain protagonist that, that came to you first, certain voice that appeared to you, or did all four kind of spring up on their own? I think the first to come to me was the 12 year old girl who lives mm. in the Century, Santa Prisca, uh, who is not a Santa until she is martyred, of course. Um, but I had encountered maybe it was the there's a church on the Aventine Hill that's called Santa Prisca, and I remember hearing her story. Um, this twelve year old girl who you know faced off against the lions in the Colosseum, and and declared her faith in spite of uh, intimidation from the Roman officials. Um, and there was something about that nugget of a story that there is a faith so large that it could propel even a young meek uh, a girl into this insane courage uh, that felt like it, it was a story that could take up not just, you know, one protagonist tale, but could take up sort of 2000 years of different people's stories. Mm, yeah. Um, and so that's where it started. And then the other characters pretty quickly came to me as um, kind of variations on a theme. How does how does that kind of faith um, reemerge and morph as we move closer to the 21st century as faith become as faith in God becomes faith in science um, and devotion to the church becomes devotion to facts and to nature, uh, sort of what is gained and what is lost. Um, so that was kind of kind of the kernel for the whole thing. And it's told in a non-linear way. I mean, these voices interweave throughout the book. Was that your intention when you started writing? Yeah, I knew I wanted to have something that reflected that sort of architectural layering that we were talking about earlier. Um, that it wasn't that that Prisca's story starts and ends and then someone else's story takes over, but that hers is kind of a constant thread through all of them. Um, and so I move forwards in time and then I go back to the, and move forwards in time again or backwards. Um, and I wanted to have that kind of uh, play between the storylines to show that, you know, whatever we're doing right now in this moment is overseen and undergirded by everything that's happened before. Well, it's such a fascinating look at Rome. I've never been there, but I felt like I, I was in Rome when I was reading it. I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I am talking today with novelist Katie Simpson-Smith. So Katie, I want to shift gears um, and talk about The Weeds, which is your book that came out this spring. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful book, both in design and the writing. Um, Can you tell us, give us an overview of the premise of the book and the structure? Yes. So the structure of the book uh, follows that of a botanical flora, which is a catalog of all the species of plants growing in a specific location. Um, And in this case, the location is the Roman Colosseum, which is about six acres big. uh, And I learned as the sort of germ for this novel in 1855, a botanist named Richard Deacon traveled to Rome to count all the species growing there in the Colosseum and counted 420, which I considered an astoundingly large number for mm-hmm. a it seems so empty and bare today. Um, so I took his original structure, which moves taxonomically through all the orders of plants, um, to tell the story of two women, alternating voices, um, a 19th century narrator and a contemporary narrator who are both uh, botanists' assistants. Um, in the 19th century, we have a young woman who uh, is apprenticed to Richard Deacon himself and is kind of the person in charge of actually getting down on her hands and knees and moving through the amphitheater to figure out what every little growing thing is. Um, and then the contemporary narrator is a graduate student in botany, um, sort of uh, mirroring some of my experiences as a graduate student. Um, and she is working for a male advisor who, um, like Deacon, doesn't really think that women have a place in science. Mm. Um, so both women are kind of running up against the constraints that this field offers them, um, as well as the sort of larger constraints of being women in, in patriarchal societies and times. Um, but the the their voices alternate plant by plant in the book, and then um, occasionally a ghost will also appear as a narrator. I loved the ghost and the ghost, I will not give any spoilers here, but you really have to read the book to find out who the ghost is because I let out a gasp (laughs) when I read that. Um, But I think it's, it's so powerful. Like we were talking about how, you know, historical figures, modern figures both have the same sorts of desires and messy impulses and challenges, how the weaving together of these two women's voices, you sometimes get lost and, you know, who, which, which woman is this? Because they seem, they have similar sets of challenges despite being separated by many, many years. Um, And I almost wanted them to like meet each other to be like, talk about these similar issues you're having. Um, What was the process like writing it and shifting in between these two, these two mindsets? Did you write them every, every other one? Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I wrote the book sort of straight through um, beginning with the very first species in Deacon's original flora, which is Clematis and going all the way to maidenhair fern. Um, and so I wrote them alternating, uh, in that order. 
um, which was challenging because it sort of interrupts the flow, the writer's flow when you're moving between voices in such um, sort of short succession. Each section is only, you know, half a page or a page long. Um, and so you're having to sort of plunge in and out of these very different brains. It's like, uh, you know, at, like moving between a hot, a hot tub and a very cold swimming pool. <laughs> um, but I wanted them to have a lot of parallel moments. Yeah. And especially towards the end of the book, I wanted their voices to begin merging and melding even more um, as they're sort of reaching the, the different climaxes of their narratives. Um, so I'm, I think there was a certain, there's certainly a challenge in keeping their voices distinct enough not to confuse the reader, but also allowing there to be these gray areas where, um, the reader's just kind of along for the ride and it's like, okay, I'm not a hundred percent sure who this is, but I'm, I'm assuming it's such and such a person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a fun way to write. And I, I have not written in such a, a to Z way before. Um, and so I definitely learned a lot in that process. Yeah. And I've, I've heard you talk about it a little bit. You wrote this book in four months, which just seems wild. How were you able to do that? I, this is my first semester teaching at Millsaps. Um, I served as the Eudora Welty chair for Southern literature for a couple of years. Um, and I was commuting from new Orleans at the time. So I would drive up on a Monday and drive back on a Friday and would teach during the week. Um, and I felt like I was getting so much from my students and right from my colleagues at Millsaps in terms of stimulation and inspiration. But I felt like my own personal time was had shrunk to mm-hmm. like Saturday and Sunday. These are the only days that I had left for myself and my own writing. Um, and there was like a brand new sense of urgency. Like if I didn't write on Saturday and Sunday, then I would somehow like never write again. Mm-hmm. So I set myself you know, a ridiculous goal of trying to write basically a book in a semester. And so I, I had to write 1500 words on Saturday and 1500 words on Sunday. Um, and was just kind of like manically going through these plant species. And these voices were kind of flowing out of me in like a weird rage trance <laughs> situation. Um, and I don't know, I felt like I was galloping in a way that for my past books, I felt like I was, I don't know, not a horse, but like an archaeologist who was mm-hmm. like digging around the edges of things very slowly, uncovering, you know, motifs that I was then like piecing together. And here it was just like, we're going through the woods real fast and trying not to, <laughs> <get the trees. laughs> um, which was, you know, I think. I think this book had to be written in that way, but I I don't know that I could ever do it again in the same way. Well, I think that's such a cool thing as a writer to be able to to see a new set of skills emerge, you know, through a project and to know that you can do that um, should the opportunity arise again. Um, so I was just so curious when I heard you say you had written it in four months. I was like, man, I just want to know the logistics of that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, I also, what's what's so fascinating to me too, is that this is your first book with a Mississippi protagonist. Um, was that an intuitive choice for you or did it take a little bit to get comfortable with the idea of having 
a Mississippi female protagonist who's from Jackson, no less. It definitely took a while to get comfortable, I would say. Um, I think in the early stages of writing, I thought, oh, we'll just like pick a random town in America to have her be from. Um, But then the way that she was talking about her experiences as a woman, as a young woman, um, there was no way that I could really divorce them from my own experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, gosh, like, would this even ring true if I had her be from Topeka? Um, and I, I, I kind of uh, was dancing around it and avoiding it for a long time. And then maybe halfway through the narrative, I thought, you know, I think she's just from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and there is, you know, a freedom in that, but also a fear that I would be somehow misrepresenting the place that I hold so dear um, or that my experience you know, it's certainly not a universal experience, um, which is something I think that has often held me back from writing about Mississippi, that mm-hmm. there's so many ways of being a Mississippian that I never want to imply that that my own um, journey of Mississippianness uh, stands in for anyone else's. Um, and so I had to sort of give myself permission to say, this is a young woman, you know, who in many ways reflects the emotional experiences that I had, even though, you know, the practical experiences of her are quite different. Um, And then just, just trust that, that readers would, would understand. Well, and I think most Mississippians reading it will love the fact that the Jackson Coliseum plays a role in the book. Can you talk about the Jackson call, how that, you know, comes up for um, the Mississippi protagonist and, Maybe a little bit about how that occurred to you as you were writing it. Yeah. So she is trying to pitch her own research project to her advisor. Um, And it occurs to her that there is another wonderful Colosseum in the world that has not been as studied as the Roman Colosseum. And she's thinking, of course, of the grand mirrored amphitheater in Jackson, (laughs) uh, which used to be yellow and orange when I was growing up. Uh, and of course, her advisor is like, no one wants to read about that. That's like, you know, an urban hellscape. <laughs> and I'm waving my hand. I want to read about it. <laughs> I know, I know. And she's like, that's exactly why we should write about it. Like, these are the stories that need telling, not the stories that have been told a dozen times before. Um, but this is a sort of battle between her as a as a woman, as an assistant, and him as a sort of power figure as a man. He wants to do the things that have already been done and are known and she wants to bring some emotion into the world of science um, and to tell stories that are on the margins and that are hidden um, and that are not as predetermined. Um, and I think the Jackson Coliseum is a fabulous example of like history in process. Um, we don't yet know what's going to happen with Jackson as a city in terms of collapse or rejuvenation in the same way that we understand Rome to have a kind of um, have already it's already had its circular journey. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, her excitement about the Coliseum as a topic of study, um, mirrors my own sense of, of what Jackson is, as as a possible, um, site for people to, uh, write new narratives. And I think especially that parallel between, you know, the Coliseum historically being such a wild, place full of plant life you know I was just looking around 
Jackson and, you know, Mississippi as a whole has so much, even in these kind of decayed, like an abandoned house, maybe there's like tons of plant life. And I, I, I've sort of been looking at that in a new way, these plants that are surviving, you know, neglect and harsh conditions, um, similar to the Roman Colosseum in a lot, probably a lot of ways. Absolutely. And you're a gardener too. So your brain is tuned into both the sort of traditional beauty, but also sort of beauty on the edges. Yeah. Well, and I love that at the heart of this book are the plants, the weeds. Um, and I think, you know, I, I especially love writing about plants and gardens by women and about women. Like I'm thinking um, about Jamaica Kincaid, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I feel like this book is in that same narrative. And I actually did want to ask you, since you're a gardener, um, your mother, Dr. Lee Smith, is also a fabulous gardener. And gardening and, you know, herbalism, these have been sort of the traditional realms of women, whereas like the hard, quote unquote, science um, is the realm of of these patriarchal male figures. Um, and you know, both the protagonists find themselves kind of between those worlds. Was Did this draw at all on your experience as an academic, sort of finding yourself between worlds um, as a gardener? How much of that was inspired by your own experience? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think absolutely this sort of in-betweenness resonates a lot with me, um, especially moving from history into fiction, history as a kind of sanctioned space that, um, you know, there's a lot of men in history who get a lot of respect telling certain kind of stories uh, into fiction, which is, uh, I think, a female dominated space in many ways, um, even if men are more often reviewed and win awards. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of, I think, giving myself permission to take from both worlds, um, to find the value in both spaces and shape a new kind of um, realm for myself that is less strictly gendered and more um, one in which I don't feel guilt or shame about um, what I am most passionate about. Um, I think gardens are also a beautiful example of that, you know, mm -hmm. um, thinking about sort of highly structured, uh, you know, terraced gardens designed by 18th century men versus the sort of wild cottage gardens of, you know, Virginia Woolf, um, that those are the spaces where, um, where we are most free to be whoever we, we want to be. Thank you for that. Um, well, this book, you know, is it's such an important book. I hope everyone gets themselves a copy of The Weeds and all of your other books. Where can we find out more about you and your work, Katie? I've got a website, katiesimpsonsmith.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram, katiesimpsonsmith. You can come find me and hang out and say hello. Well Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. 
We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find in legal terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website at legalterms.mpbonline.org.